Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,322. Have you ever thought about just selling everything and hitting the road, going around the world, seeing things, all car related? Well, today's guest did just that. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in, uh, well, I'm in Virginia, but, you know, I could be anywhere in the world with this guest because this guy gets around. His name is Michael Milne. Michael, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have it in gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? Yes, I am. We're going to have some fun today. Now, you've done something that we're going to get into that I think some people secretly dream to dare to do, but they would probably never do it. And we'll get into that in a moment. But before we get there, what's one little thing that people maybe don't know about you, Michael? Well, since 2011, my wife and I have been full-time global nomads. It's amazing. I mean, what you've done... Uh, is one of those, like I said earlier, everybody I think secretly has a dream to just do that. And and we'll get into the details of it. But Mm -hmm. my goodness, I do have one question in that vein. Did your wife Mm -hmm. talk you into this or did you have to talk your wife into it? Uh, (laughs) I won't take the Fifth Amendment. Um, (laughs) We were were both interested in it, me probably more so. And it took a little bit of convincing, but not a lot of convincing. For a life like this, you really have to both be into it. Oh, absolutely. You don't go halfway when you do something like this, (laughs) for sure. Wow, it's amazing. Well, let me give you an introduction, and we're going to dive a lot deeper into what you two do. Michael Milne is an automotive writer. He's an author and, as he said, a nomad. In 2011, he and his wife Larissa quit their jobs. They sold their house, gave away their possessions, and took off from their hometown in Philadelphia to travel around the world. After 12 years, they are still on the road as full-time global adventurers sharing their journey on their website, which is titled changesinlongitude.com. Michael writes articles for Hemmings Motor News, Octane, Classic and Sports Car, AAA, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and other publications. You'll find them anywhere in the world. Uh, they visited hundreds of classic car sites, museums, and events, and his latest book is titled 75 Top Car Museums, Europe and America, a collection of magazine articles. And along with Jay Leno, Michael is on the judging panel for the annual Historic Motoring Awards in the UK, as if he's not busy enough. We'll be back in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsors. They keep the petrol in the tanks here so we can stay in the go. So give them a little love, and we'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up. But my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. 
That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Did you know that Cars Yeah! is in the top 1% of all podcasts based on listenership according to Libsyn, the premier RSS feed for podcasts in the United States? That's right. Plus, DuPont Registry recommended Cars Yeah! is one of their top 10 car podcasts for you to enjoy. Cars Yeah! has experienced tremendous growth, plus your ads are evergreen, meaning they never go away. And more and more listeners find Cars Yeah! every day for their daily dose of automotive inspiration. Do you want to expose your brand to a highly targeted list of automotive enthusiasts in a very unique in very personal way, well, I can help you. Contact me, Mark Green, at mark at carsyad.com or through the website at carsyad.com today to learn more. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and first-hand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, Michael, we are back. So I want to dig a little deeper. and We'll go back in time to why you made this move in your life. This is such a dramatic thing for people to do. And as I mentioned earlier, I think some people secretly think, could I do that? Would I dare to do that? What started all this? Um, it was during the Great Recession. Our jobs were going so-so. So we decided to quit our jobs, which wasn't giving up too much at that point, and then sell our house, give away most of our possessions. And at the time it was, let's just travel around the world for a year. It's something we've always wanted to do. And it was a good time to do it. I was in commercial real estate, and since that was in the tank, I wasn't going to miss anything by being gone for a year. I could have been gone for a couple of years. And we just took off from Philadelphia. We headed to China as our first stop with a side trip to North Korea. And then we just kind of made it up as we went along from there. Now, when you say a side trip to North Korea? Yep. I didn't even know people could go into North Korea. Wow. I wouldn't suggest it now, but um, at the time, uh, Americans could visit there. It had to be part of an organized tour, which is something we don't really like doing. We're independent travelers. But I'd always been fascinated with it. If you remember the Pueblo incident back in 1968 when the— U.S. Navy ship, the Pueblo, had been captured in international waters by North Korea, and the sailors were kept hostage for 11 months. And that had been very much in the news. My dad had been in the Coast Guard, so he was always telling me stories about it. And after the Pueblo had been released, uh, the, the crewmen had been released, I wrote a letter to Lloyd Buker, who was the commander of the Pueblo, and he wrote me a long two-page letter back about their experiences. So ever since then, I was intrigued by it. The Pueblo is still in Pyongyang, North Korea. It's the only U.S. Navy ship that's the commission ship that's in enemy hands. And I just always felt a desire to go see it and pay my tribute to Commander Buker. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, you know, again, this seems like an amazing thing to do to just get rid of your possessions and travel. But 
I'm seeing more and more people doing this. I follow some people on YouTube that do this, a, a couple that sail yep. around the world. Another one that is a, a young woman who gets in a Range Rover Defender and she just travels the world by herself. And so the way to stay connected now while you're on the road didn't exist back then. So I have to ask, like, what were you doing for income or were you thinking that this was going to become something that you could work while you're traveling? Because 12 years ago, I mean, we had cell phones and things like that, but not right. not the way we do today. Yeah, ironically, I gave up my cell phone when we started traveling. I said, <laughs> let me see how long I let me see how long I can go without it. But it's been 12 years and I still don't have one. What? Well, <laughs> yeah, wow. it, it's, it's nice. It's, uh, it's very liberating. Wow. Well, we sold our house and we used the proceeds from the home sale to, to fund the trip. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. And then we, we figured out, we started writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer travel section. That's our hometown newspaper. And we had a column called A Year in a World where we, we reported in from various destinations around the globe. And that started getting us into a career as travel writers. Now, travel writing doesn't pay much, so we have a much simpler lifestyle. And when you travel without owning a home anywhere... It's amazing how many, how few expenses you have. It's you know you, you have rent wherever you're staying, and you have uh, you got to eat. But we don't have all the the maintenance and all the other things associated with owning a home. So just having a, a simpler lifestyle has enabled us to keep this going. Now, after the first year when we got back to the United States, we we looked at each other and, and we were at JFK Airport in New York. It was kind of a letdown, and we both said, you know what? This is fun. Let's figure out a way to keep this going. <laughs> Let's just catch another flight uh, somewhere. Yeah. So so um, we, we had put a few things in storage in a little storage unit. We got went and looked at it, and we opened the door and said, my God, why do we have so many lamps? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We shut the door, and we ignored it for a year. We, we kept traveling until they raised the rent, and we finally got rid of everything. Wow. But it, 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 um, I started uh, travel writing. Larissa was travel writing as well. She was consulting a bit for some company she had worked with in Philadelphia in the biotech field. So it was basically a little bit of this, a little bit of that to kind of keep the lights on, so to speak. Wow. Well, I, I call this super brave because uh, it goes against all the usual norms of, of people's lives and things they do. But as you said, you find it rather liberating. And today you're doing, in addition to the traveling and writing about the traveling, you also write articles for a lot of publications. Are they typically articles about the places that you go visit? They're about the places we visited, but lately I've been writing more about car-related topics, and I kind of fell into that by accident. Uh, we were at the War Eagles Air Museum in New Mexico, and both of us, Larissa and I, are both interested in airplanes, and this was an airplane museum that also had cars. And in the gift shop, there was a guide to airplane museums, and I asked the fellow at the museum, I said, do you have a book like this about car museums? And he said, no, there isn't one out there. So I said, I'm going to write one. So I spent the, the next year, we, we drove around America on the, the great epic American road trip. Larissa is very patient. And that's when I came up with the Roadster Guide to America's Classic Car Museums, which is a, a guide, just like the title implies, to car museums and other attractions around America. And it's now in its second edition. It's proven to be a popular book. Oh, this is so cool. Now, I would assume that you kept uncovering car museums because I've interviewed a lot of people who are curators and directors of car museums. And I thought I knew, you know, there's all the big major ones you hear about, but they just keep kind of coming out of the woodwork. Is that what you found? Did you just kept finding them? I still will be. Uh, last year, we were doing a road trip from Albuquerque up to Kansas City and back to Lubbock and Albuquerque. Very exotic. 
And the day before we were leaving Topeka, Kansas, I was looking at our route on Google Maps, and I said, there's a car museum in, Manhattan, in, uh, in, in Manhattan, Kansas, that I had never heard of. It turns out it had opened just a year before, a Midwest Dream Car Collection. So I called them up. They were closed the next day. I said, I'm just passing through town. I, I write the monthly museums column for Hemings Motor News. Could someone meet me there to, to show me the, the museum? Sure enough, they, they met us there, and um, I had never even heard of it before. And this, I had I've written two editions of my book. They, they keep, people still keep opening car museums. And then there are some that are just a small neighborhood museum. I focus on museums that are open to the public, not private collections. Private collections would be probably hundreds more. But it, it, it's great to see that in the hobby, that there are still people with such a passion that they want to display their collection for other people to see and also educate younger people about cars. Absolutely. Have you found with your world travels, are cars as uh, a big a thing around the world as well? Yes, they are. When we were in the um, Oslo, Norway, I saw more American classic cars driving around there than I would see around a typical American city. In Norway? Wow. In Norway. And some of these were, you know, late 50s land yachts with big Norwegian flags flying on them. And there's a huge American car culture in Norway. Uh, Australia has a huge car culture. Japan, um, in uh, Buenos Aires, where there was a Ford Falcon factory for decades, driving in from the airport in Argentina, I was stunned by how many vintage Ford Falcons I saw on the road being used as everyday vehicles. It's not just an American thing, but it's certainly American-influenced. Well, this is cool. And one thing I've learned with interviewing so many people is the car culture really brings people together no matter what socioeconomic or place in the world they're in. If you find another fellow car friend, you're friends automatically. Is that what you found around the world? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, you, you go into the museums, you talk to people that are looking at cars, and right away you have a rapport and an instant camaraderie talking about them. And one of the questions I'll, when I interview somebody is, what, is your, what was your first car? And that just gets people started. You know, they get a glint in their eye. They remember back in high school and when they finally had the freedom of the road. And that's something that connects all of us that are into cars. Well, you just said the words, freedom of the road. Automobiles give us freedom no matter where we are. The ability to just venture out and not be stuck with any timeline with maybe trains and rail and air. You can just go out and do whatever you want. And I guess that's the same all around the world. I, I mentioned in your intro that you also, along with Jay Leno, uh, you're on a judging panel mm -hmm. for the uh, annual Historic Motoring Awards in the UK. Tell me about that. Uh, those are done by Octane Magazine. It's a magazine in the UK that I write for. And they have a big black tie event every fall, and they have about 15 categories. And I judge on, on the car museum category, but they also judge, you know, person who contributed most to the hobby, um, best car club, best cl classic car club. So it's just a, a way for people around the world to get um, involved in cars and, and see what other, other people out there are doing. Well, what a fascinating life you and your wife have created for you. And we're going to get into some of the books you wrote. But the first thing I want to ask you is when it comes to what you're doing with your life and the automotive world, has there been somebody that's been incredibly inspirational, maybe even a mentor to you that when you look back now, realize they kind of helped you with what you're doing with your life today? Yeah, starting out, um, when we wrote the articles for the Philip Inquirer. Neither of us has a background in writing. I was in commercial real estate, Larissa was in biotech. So we just started writing, 
you know, write what you know, as I think Mark Twain once said. So we write these stories. But then we started writing for AAA magazine. And there we had editors that really picked apart stories. We had never had the inquiry. We just kind of submitted the stories and they published them. And like, hey, this is easy. But uh, our first editor there, John Moyer, he'd send the story back to us and say, well, you say you like this. Why? Or you explain that there are these cards there. He'd say such as, you know, give me some examples. And that really elevated our, our writing standards because for the first time we had somebody really, really critiquing us. Uh, current editor there, Teresa Medoff, uh, is, has John retired and she's picked up the, um, doing the same thing in his position. And it's, uh, it keeps us on our toes. Sometimes it can be frustrating, <laughs> but it, it does, does make us think when we're, you know, don't just say, here's the car. Well, what's special about this car? Or here's the person. What's special about this person? And, and they really got us to go from being kind of amateur writers to professional writers. Now, here's a big question for you. If somebody listening today goes, holy cow, you mean I can go do this? I can just sell everything and travel and do all this? What would be the best piece of advice you would offer somebody who is considering doing what you and your wife have done? You have to have a passion for it. It's not something you'll do for the money. One of the reasons we have a simple nomadic lifestyle is that writing doesn't, doesn't pay well. Uh, it helps to have some savings. You know, starting doing this as a 22-year-old might be harder than a 52-year-old, although a 22-year-old would be more comfortable sleeping on somebody's floor probably than we, than we would be. <laughs> yeah. But, but if, you, if you have a passion for it, you'll find opportunities. When we started traveling around the world, uh, we were interviewed by the, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and they said, what do you hope to get out of this? And I said, I don't know, but I, but I hope when this year is over, I'm doing something different than when I started. It would be awfully disappointing to travel around the world for a year and then come back to Philadelphia in the same job I had before and doing the same things. So I would tell someone, you know, take that leap if you have a passion for it and see what happens. Because once you're out there and you have to succeed, you'll, 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 you'll work it and you'll make it happen. Would you agree, and I've said this to many people, I think we're living in a time right now, given the reach of almost free social media, what I do with podcasting, YouTube, you can create a life around what you're doing for so little money, and other than time, of course. Right. Would you agree that we're living in a time now that there's been no other time in history that you could do something like this? It's, it's true, and the key is if you can monetize it. I mean, if somebody is a millionaire and they just do this as a hobby, that's great. But if you want to make a living at it, there's many opportunities. The key is to figure out how you go from cre uh, creating content, displaying content, and getting someone to pay for it. Yeah, it's all about eyes and ears, at least in my world of podcasting. But I also see this on YouTube with very successful YouTubers. You've got to get a lot of eyes on your show, and that means a lot of work. Right. And you got to do a good job. And, and you, again, the passion comes through, I think, for people that are doing this that are super successful. I'm amazed by some of the people I see making very good incomes, doing incredible things. Uh, but it's not easy. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and and but you're right. Twenty years ago, there weren't all these opportunities. Right. Just yeah. like um, you know, my books being self uh, self published, an independently published book, and sold on Amazon, I couldn't have done that twenty years ago. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing time. So there are a few obstacles in our way. However, I would like you to offer us a great challenge that perhaps you and your wife have faced along the way that maybe pushed you to the brink to where you think maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But when you look back, you go, you know, glad we had that challenge. Taught us a great lesson. 
you know, we were contacted by a publisher. Um, our blog, changesinlongitude.com, had won a Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Award. Congratulations. And that kind of got us a little bit on the radar, and a publisher contacted us to do a travel guide to the Philadelphia Historic District, which was kind of ironic because at that point we hadn't lived in Philadelphia in four years, but we had lived there for 20 years before then. And we researched the heck out of it. It's called uh, Philadelphia Liberty Trail, Trace the Path of America's Heritage. And we were pretty psyched. We were like, wow, legitimate publishers reached out to us because in the back of my head, I knew I wanted to write books about cars at some point. And it was a good experience. Uh, we had editors and professional and the, the money <laughs> was super low. My wife had to convince me to do it. She said, just look at it as a low paid internship. We'll <laughs> learn about the publishing business. Well, Literally, between the time we submitted the manuscript and the time that the book was due to be published, they got bought by a textbook publisher who had a very different attitude towards a travel book about Philadelphia. So all of a sudden, it, it wasn't going to look the same, uh, it wasn't going to be as long, and it wasn't going to be marketed by them. And well, the book came out. We liked it. We were glad to say our names on an actual physical book. It, it wasn't, you know, we worked solidly uh, three months to, to write this. It, it wasn't what we had expected. And after that experience, I said, you know, I think I can do this myself. We, we kind of learned by working with a, a real publisher, Fortress Publisher, as they call them. So when I did the Roadster Guide to America's Classic Car Museums, I did, um, I did, I was the chief cook and bottle washer. I wrote it. I, I did hire an editor. I knew enough to have somebody <laughs> to else that. look at it, but you know, and and somebody to to format it. But I, I put it all together. I acted as the publisher, and and put it out, and also all the marketing. That's what we learned when we used a, a publisher. They don't really market the book. They count on the authors to do that. And I said, well, if I'm going to be doing all this work, I should be motivated by getting the revenue when the book sells. Uh, so, what I what I learned from that is it's good to learn from people. But it's also good to step away when you feel like you can do something yourself and you don't really need the old ways. Just like you said, you know, 20 years ago, there weren't all these opportunities out there. 20 years ago, if you wanted to publish a book, you went through a, a book publisher and independent publishing was kind of looked down upon. Now there are lots of very successful independent publishers and it's just a new way of doing things. It is. Well, great lesson learned, tough lesson, but yeah, uh, sometimes when you are counting on other people, they pull the rug out from underneath you and you're like, well, now what? So great lesson learned. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, when you look ahead to your bucket list, what's on the plan? <laughs> My bucket list is actually very far out. We've been to six continents, but not Antarctica. And the, the problem there is I'm not good on ships that go bouncing around and the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife is my wife is fine with it. So um, I said, you know what? If I go first, not to Antarctica, but leave this mortal coil, I said, will you take my ashes to Antarctica? She said, sure. So now I, I feel like I feel you'll make it known. there someday. <laughs> Eventually, I'll, I'll make it to all seven continents in one form or another. Wow, um, that's an interesting way to think about it. So, so hopefully, it's not something the next two or three years. No, no, no. Let's make it way far out there, way, way, way far out there. So, uh, very good answer. That's a funny answer to that question. So, let's talk a little bit about your passion for cars. Is there a special car story in your life? Mm -hmm. We had a 1988 Alfa Romeo Quadrifoglio. Alpha Red, this was just about the prettiest car I've seen ever or since. 
I mean, we drive down the street, people will give us the thumbs up. It was convertible, and we, and we just loved it. Uh, we we entered a road rally. We got a medal for doing that properly, finding all the destinations, and it was just a fun, fun car to drive. The flip side is I learned a lot about Italian cars the hard way, and <laughs> yeah. w- whatever could break could break. And the, 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 all the other owners in the Alpha Club, they had such a passion for the cars. Like the battery was in the, in the trunk under this carpet, and the batteries were known to leak, leak acid all over the trunk. I mentioned to somebody, they go, oh, it's your fault. You have to always lift the carpet after you, you, you stop the car so it's not so the battery can breathe. <laughs> and, yeah. everything. and it was always your fault. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. I've had cars with batteries before. I never had to lift the carpet before I put it in the garage. So it was, it was a fun car to have for a few years, but I, I also realized, you know, maybe some, next time something a little more reliable, but they are still sweet to look at. Yeah. You know, I've learned from talking to so many people in the car world, the Alpha is one of those love-hate relationships and people that are into them are really into them no matter what. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they're one of those cars, but they certainly are beautiful. I'm particularly in love with the cars from the 30s and 40s and 50s, those Alphas. There are a few models that most people have never seen that are just stunning, just beautiful, beautiful old cars. visited the Alfa Romeo Museum in Italy. Uh, I wrote a story for him about that. And it's, if I had to say what car, what museum has the most beautiful cars, it would be Alfa. And we, we, we kitted around, you know, a, Italian engineering a style over substance. I mean, it was, it was, they are pretty. Well, it's kind of the same with the old Ferraris. My son got to work for a summer in a shop working on old Ferraris. He had no experience at all. It was kind of an internship in high school. And I remember him coming home one night saying, Dad, you know, those Ferraris, they're beautiful on the outside, but the inside's a mess. <laughs> And I said, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I was working on a Daytona today, and one side was actually longer than the other side of the car. And I said, well, yeah, it was a different kind of uh, handmade mentality. Well, the guy on the, the right side was drinking too much Chianti, maybe. I don't know. I could, I could definitely see that. And the, and the flip side, the Alpha we got was at a, it was a Ferrari dealership. And I remember seeing the prices. I think the Ferrari and oil change is $1,200. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. It's that's another passion level at a higher level. Although they become much, much more uh, reliable and normal nowadays. I've got a friend here in the Pacific Northwest that's put over a hundred thousand miles on his Ferrari. Drives it everywhere, snow, everything. That that is impressive. That is yeah. impressive. Yeah, he may hold a record. I don't know. So I'm a bit of a car psychologist here, and given the kind of guy you are, which is very unique, someone who's done what you've done with your life. If you were reincarnated or manifest as a vehicle, mm-hmm. not what you want to be though. This is how you perceive yourself as some type of vehicle. What would you be, and why? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, we've been asked a lot of questions, and no one has asked. That question. Well, thank you. That's cool. <laughs> I consider myself somebody who's reliable, sporty, fun, and also if you have to change parts, not too hard to get a replacement part. Okay. Um, so I would think a BMW 3 Series convertible would be, you know, I'd say look, looks looks decent, fun to drive, fun to be around, and uh, and a car you can count on. Okay, now that's a very unique answer, although I've got to agree because I've had many BMWs. I've got an E46 M3 right now. My son had a 328CI. My wife's driven X5s mm-hmm. forever. They've been super great cars and very reliable yep. and just always perform well. And I've had a lot of other exotic cars that eh, maybe don't do quite the same. Uh, the Porsches I've had, and I've had many of those, have been pretty good, but not, mm-hmm. as, not as reliable. But I thought for sure I'd hear from you something like a, a Range Rover Defender or Land 
Land Rover or something like that, given the fact that you've trekked all over the world. <laughs> yeah. But I get it. Okay. I, I, I'm a, I'm a ragtop, top-down kind of person. Okay. Well, some of those old Defenders had, had convertible tops on them, too, but uh, oh, I, I understand. Yeah. yeah, I understand. Well, I wanted to touch again br- here briefly on the books that you've written, because we love books. I like to refer books. Uh, can you go over those? I think I've got three of them listed here. Have I got them all, all right? The, yeah. The, okay. Yep. Yeah. Can you go through those with us real quick? Yeah, the, the Philadelphia Liberty Trail, that was a, a Project Lyris, and I did, that was the one for the publisher. And that's a, a travel guide to the historic district of our hometown of Philadelphia. But then once we started getting into the, the car riding, my first book was Roadster Guide to America's Classic Car Museums and Attractions, which is lists over 300 car museums and various other classic car-related attractions in America. First edition came out. People enjoyed it, and then I spent another two years with Larissa being dragged along. She takes a lot of the photos um, to put the second edition together because I would get emails from people. I said, hey, if there's a museum I missed, send me an email, and I'll send you a free copy of the next edition. Well, people took me up on that offer. And a few years, just before the pandemic hit, the, uh, the second edition came out. And Last month, uh, we published 75 Top Car Museums, Europe and America, a collection of magazine articles, which, as the subtitle implies, it's a collection of the magazine articles I've written about museums in Europe and and America, and uh, articles for Hemmings, for various magazines in the UK, also AAA, Philadelphia Inquirer, and it's more in-depth. The Roadster Guide, you know, those are about two to 300 words summaries of a museum so you know what's there to visit it and it's got all the details whereas the collection of the 75 top car museums book gets more into detail it's you know those are a thousand word articles that were published in magazines so you really learn more about the museum some of the history of it uh you learn more about some of the cars that are there as well so it's um they're really a good companion guides one's uh or the Detroit Free Press called the Roadster Guide, a great card, a great book to keep in your glove box when you're on the road. The other ones want to curl up and sit in a chair and, and read about car museums. I'll put links to all of these on a Michael's show notes page on the Car Show website so you can get your hands on these. I encourage you to check them out and be inspired by this nomad and his wife, Larissa. Uh, who knows where you might end up, maybe on the road, having some fun like they are. So speaking of being on the road, I am an enabler. I'm going to enable you and Larissa to do something rather unique. I'm going to provide you with any vehicle in the world. You can take it anywhere in the world. I assume you're going to be with Larissa here. Usually I tell people they can take anybody they want with them, but I'm going to keep you guys together today. So if there's a place you haven't been, in a car you haven't been in, and a drive you haven't been on, what does this ultimate drive look like for you? Well, I might get in trouble here because Larissa's in the other room. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we won't tell her. Larissa, just cover your ears. We travel enough together. We, we, we kid around. We spend our entire lives about three feet apart. Yeah. So I was allowed to go to the other room to do this interview. <laughs> okay. um, I would actually, I would actually travel with my grandfather. Ah, oh, nice. My grandpa, Joey, lived to a hundred. He emigrated from Sicily when he was 19 to New York City. Uh, I grew up in New York and he always had a 1962 sky blue Cadillac that was just gorgeous. It wasn't the hugest tail fins, but they were pretty darn big when I was a little kid looking at that thing. And whenever we went anywhere, I'd be in the front, in the middle, you know, no seatbelts, no, just yep, <laughs> bouncing around. I remember around. those, yeah. And if we went on a trip, I would drive instead of him because he was an awful driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he had a lot of metal around him. <laughs> and this was driving in Queens, uh, oh, which goodness. is a pretty crowded place to drive a big Cadillac. But I, I would do a, a road trip around Sicily. Even though we lived to 100, and I thought I had all the stories about him, a few years later, I was uh, years ago, I was doing some um, research, you know, genealogy research, and I got information about his immigration from the U.S. State Department, and I found out that he came to this country as a 19-year-old illegally on a forged visa. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Nobody, nobody ever knew that before. And um, there's hundreds of pages of court testimony back in the 30s when they finally caught on to him. And, and I'd just like to find out what that was like. I mean, he must have been, you know, he was desperate to leave Sicily at 19, that he would, he would take that step. And what it was like when he was a young man, by then he was married and had a, a daughter who turned out to be my mother. And he was getting close to getting uh, kicked out of the country with his family and sent back to Sicily. Must the, have been the scary. We wanted to leave. And, and he, none of us ever knew this. Even when I talked to my mother and my aunt about this, none of them knew any of this stuff. You know, I only found it doing this research. So it would just be, um, you know, I wish I could have learned more about that from him when he was alive. Well, it's a good reminder for all of us to spend time with uh, the elders around us, even if they're just neighbors, and just get them to talk. I had thought about creating a, a podcast when I started this podcast to just interview elder people about their past, because so many of us don't know anything about our family members except maybe our parents from the time we grew up, that they had this entire life before that. Yep, and specifically the grandparents, particularly if they're in another country, it's just hard to, to learn about them. Well, perhaps some of those nomadic genes rubbed off on you from your grandfather, mm -hmm. that he dared to be so bold to do what he did. So that sounds like a, a, a wonderful thing to do with him, drive around Sicily in that old 62 Cadillac and just learning about his past and his history and, mm -hmm. and what came of all that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, this uh, this uh, 23 and Me, we've learned some amazing things about our family that we didn't know doing the genetics thing and some, some very yep. unique surprises too. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's great, great to learn all that. You have taken us on a wonderful journey. I knew this would be fun with you today, Michael, and I can't thank you enough for taking a little moment out of your very busy travel schedule to spend it with the Cars yeah audience. Before I let you go today, would you share maybe some words of inspiration or wisdom with our listeners? You know, when I was in college, uh, I was interviewing for my first so-called professional job in New York City. I was pretty nervous that day, but before then, I, you know, I'd worked in warehouses, forklift operator, dairy barn, that type of thing. And this was the first time I'd worked in an uh, interview for a job in an office. You know, my dad's still tying my tie for me. So I was nervous. I was leaving the house, and my dad said, just be yourself. And right away, I wasn't nervous anymore. And it's the best advice. Be yourself. Don't put on airs. Things will be fine. It's great advice. When I started doing this podcast, it was so foreign to me. I asked a lot of people their opinions, and I asked a very successful podcaster um, who was doing really well. Even back then, this was nine-plus years ago, uh, what's the best advice? He goes, just be you. Don't try to be somebody else. Exactly. That's, that's very true. Yep. Works for a while. How can people learn more about you and travel along with you and Larissa? Well, uh, I'll blog is at changesinlongitude.com. And we also have another one, arizonatraveljourney.org. And my books, The Roadster Guide and 75 Top Car Museums. As we discussed, I am not on social media, but you can find me on LinkedIn. But if anyone wants to reach out to me, you go to changesinlongitude.com and there is a contact page. 
There you go. I'll put links to all of those on Michael's show notes page. Check them out. What a life you and Larissa are living. My hat's off to you. Brave folks. Wonderful thing that you're doing. I just am in awe when I come across people like you that have dared to, to be so bold. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your life with us today. I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and taking a moment out and for Larissa letting you escape to the other room here. Until you and I talk again, my friend, no doubt I'll see you somewhere down the road. All right. Thanks very much. You're welcome. This was super. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe, that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!